Walk a mile in these Louboutins But they don't wear these shits where I'm from Hello and welcome to the Voices of Echo podcast. I'm your host, Doug Wagner. All right, we're here today with Dave Menzel, President and Chief Operating Officer of Echo. Hello, Dave. Hey, Doug. How you doing today? I'm good. Good. Well, uh, let's start today's show by just hearing a little bit about you, where you came from, where you grew up, where you went to school, and uh, tell us that story. So uh, I grew up in Florida. Most, most, uh, a lot of you guys might know that already, but uh, my youth was spent in, uh, in, in, the, in the sunshine state of Florida. Uh, grew up in Ormond Beach, which is just next to Daytona Beach. So grew up kind of as a, a bit of a redneck as a kid. Uh, did a lot of hunting and fishing. Uh, played a lot of sports. And uh, grew up in rural Florida. Ended up uh, going to Florida State. Uh, only had a couple options in my mind at the time. It was either University of Florida or FSU. And um, focused on accounting. Graduated in uh, you know in a five-year program in accounting. I have an important question. Okay. Where'd you go for spring break in college? That's great, because I was in Daytona Beach, so I didn't need to go anywhere. Um, <laughs> I have to recollect, I think we went to Panama City a couple of times. Um, you know, stayed home a couple of times, because all the, all the northerners came to Daytona, so we had a lot of fun at spring break time. Now, when you were a high school kid, did you sneak up to Daytona to see what the college kids were doing? Absolutely. That was, uh, that was, uh, that was the high time, when the, when the college kids came down. We had our little fake IDs made out of construction paper, and we would... Uh, did they work? They would work, believe it or not. Times were different back then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me about it. So, uh, now I know you're a big golfer today, but did you did you learn to play golf as a kid? I played a little bit of golf as a kid. Um, I, I, I focused. I played a little bit more football and, and believe it or not, tennis. A very odd kind of combination. Played a little bit of golf, and 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 after I got out of college, really after I moved to to Chicago, I started taking up golf a little more seriously. So I played a little bit as a kid, but. Um, probably in my early 30s, I started playing all the time when I came up to Chicago. Okay. And you got a master's degree in accounting, correct? That's right. And that was at FSU also? Correct. It was a five-year program at the time. So if you wanted to work in public accounting, you had to get a five-year degree. And where did you take your CPA? I did that in Florida. Okay. Yep. Then what brought you to Chicago? Well, I worked for Arthur Anderson for about uh, two or three years and had the bright idea that I wanted to be a trader. And so decided to move to Chicago with the idea that I would um, leave Anderson shortly and be trading uh, options on the uh, Chicago uh, Options Exchange. I had about $3,000 saved up, $5,000 on a credit card that I could, thought I could borrow, and, and uh, was going to try to do that. And I, I came up here and realized that wasn't anywhere close to enough money. Ended up staying with Arthur Anderson for 10 years. So the trader, the trader idea never materialized. Did you trade at all? I did not trade. Okay. I never did. It was funny, though, because I, I met a guy uh, in St. Charles, which is where we had centralized uh, training for Arthur Anderson. And he worked at, in San Francisco. We became good friends. And, and I remember this because at the time, I think I made uh, $20,000 was starting salary uh, at Anderson back in the day. And my buddy quit after about two years, and he became an options trader. And in his second year trading options, he made $150,000. So I thought that was the get-rich-quick scheme, and I was always uh, pretty good with math and you know, had a loud mouth, as most people know me well. No, and so I thought that would be a perfect uh, strategy for me. But when I came up here, I, I really uh, just decided that if it didn't work out, I, I wasn't going to be happy with the, the path that it took me on, so ended up not pulling the trigger and probably didn't have enough money to pull the trigger either. 
probably a good career decision. I, I think a lot of people that were trading back in those days are either struggling now or they've got out of it completely. Yeah, in hindsight, I'm glad I didn't do it. But at the time, uh, I thought it was a good idea. And that was, that's really, that was a primary reason I came to Chicago. I mean, the second piece of the puzzle was I, I just wanted to work in a bigger city. I was working in Tampa for a couple of years. And I just thought, you know, spend three to five years in a bigger city, you know, would be fun and, and give me different experiences. Now you've got a beautiful wife and two daughters. Um, I, I believe you met Petey at Florida State also, correct? Yep, Petey, was, Petey went to FSU as well, and we worked together at Anderson back in Tampa for a short period of time, so uh, we go way back. Okay, and the daughters, your, your girls were born here? Both girls were born in Chicago. Okay. Um, yeah, they're 21 and 18 now, so my 21-year-old's a junior at FSU, so... Uh, so the family tradition has continued, and my youngest, who's a senior in high school today, is trying to decide between FSU and Texas, and it looks like it's FSU's in the slot position right now, according to the conversation I had with her last night, so we'll see how it turns out. So uh, you spent 10 years at Arthur Anderson, and uh, you know I think for those that don't know, that's, that's a grind, right? You were out working on audits for Yep. Companies and their long days and long weeks. And, and as soon as one project, the next one starts. And uh, the path generally for people in public accounting is to make it the partner. Now, did you, was that your goal or, or did you just want to get experience and move on into business? That's a great question. I think um, it wasn't my goal going in. I think that, you know, the big carrot in, in those days, just like you said, it's, it's your, your, your grinding it out. Uh, working all, week, all weekends pretty much. And, you know, we used to joke that how, the, how there could be these accounting emergencies every weekend that required us to come in and work, but we always had to. And uh, Big Carrot was to make partner. And I was uh, in it for about eight or nine years and, and just kind of learning a lot along the way. Um, you know, felt like one of the advantages to being at a bigger company was they invested a lot in training and development. And, and as my career was progressing, progressing. I was taking on you know, new responsibilities, I think. But at the end of the day, I didn't see myself doing that for an entire career. And I wanted, you know, one of the things I got personally tired of doing was, you know, you go into clients and you kind of do the accounting work and you try to give them advice on how to run the business better or more efficiently. And I worked in a lot of small to mid-sized companies. So the, the accounting business was a lot different back then. It was a little less regulatory and a little more consultative. And, uh, but you'd have what you thought would be good ideas, but you never really implemented anything. And so I wanted to, that's really what kind of drove me out is I just wanted to be a part of a, of a team of people, you know, trying to make a company successful as opposed to flying in for four weeks, coming up with some bright ideas that you thought were good, but never really getting the chance to execute them. So you worked for Arthur Anderson during your 20s, essentially. Yep. And those were your, right, all of our formative, formative years. Um, so what did you learn in your 20s in your first job? that's carried you through to where you are today? I mean, what were the important lessons? What investments did you make in your career? Um, what did you learn, you know, working at a big company that invested in training and people? And, uh, and, and how do you translate that into the young people that are coming to work for Echo today right out of college in, in the same period of their life? You know, what, what's interesting is you, you come out of, when I reflect back, you come out of school with a certain set of core skills. You know, you have a personality, you have energy. You know, I was always good in math, good with numbers. Um, and uh, obviously, you learn a lot of technical skills over the first 10 years, just like you would at Echo. You'd learn about freight and you'd learn how the, how the market works and, 
and, and, and different ways to transport goods and all the things that can go wrong. So back in those days, I would learn a lot about accounting and business and, and all of that, and you're refining those technical skills. But probably the most important lesson that I learned was about communication. And specifically for me, it was probably more writing skills because back in those days when we were doing audits, you know, we were constantly having to write memos and letters and explain the situation at hand, if you will. And, you know, what I've always found interesting is, that, you know, how do you take a complex set of facts and try to make it, you know, boil it down into a concise message? You know, and I see that in sales and in all kinds of other areas of business. You know, one of the skills that younger people struggle with at times is, you know, they understand what's going on or they see the landscape, but they have trouble taking that detailed knowledge and coalescing it into a consistent message or a simple message. And I think that that was one of the big takeaways I thought I, I learned at, at Anderson that's, that's helped me throughout my career. Well, it's especially hard now when you're limited as to the number of characters you can use on Twitter and Snapchat, exactly. right? Exactly. You've got to be really good at it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's different from when I uh, was in my 20s as well. I mean, we didn't even have email then. I mean, <laughs> that makes me sound ancient, but uh, we, used a, we used a device that was – uh, akin to a teletype yeah. and uh, it was like a typewriter that electronically you know you typed in one place and it printed out in another yeah i remember when you made manager what you, you got a secretary and and uh they gave you you know if you wanted to use it uh, a dictaphone where you could make you know re- verbally record a memo and she would you, she would have these little tapes and she would type them up for you and um voicemail was kind of new uh, as well at the time and and uh just totally different world no email um totally different world that we lived in well i'm gonna date myself again but i think back to my my first sales job you know in the transportation business in, in my 20s and uh, early 20s and uh i had a company car and i would drive around i would see customers and of course you have to call customers you have to call the office there were no cell phones in those days so i drove around with rolls of quarters in my car and I would go to phone booths <laughs> to stop and make phone calls. And if they were long distance, I had an AT&T calling card and, uh, you know, my, my, it's changed a lot. Yeah, that's for sure. Hard to find a phone booth these days. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Maybe in a third world country. Um, so after Anderson, what did you do next? And how did you transition from Anderson and why, why did you leave and where'd you go? So I was, I, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I had the idea that I wanted to to, to be a part of a business. And after, you know, working on probably hundreds and hundreds of audits and seeing lots of different companies, you know, had the desire. And so what ended up happening at the time is I was doing an audit for a software company and got to know, you know, the management team there and, and, uh, they were growing and wanted to hire a CFO. They didn't have one at the time. And I ended up, uh, uh, leaving to go to my client and becoming the CFO for this, uh, small software company that was, uh, you know, in a high growth stage. So take me from you know, that first software company, your, your transition of companies, the, some of the highlights of your career, all the way up to when you joined Deco. Well, it's kind of, you know, another thing that was interesting for me, when I transitioned out of, out of Arthur Anderson into that software company, one of the biggest changes was I was so used to working with a bunch of accountants. You know, so if you think about Arthur Anderson, it's this giant firm and everybody's educated the same way you know obviously a lot of young people a lot of similarities to what i see at echo in terms of the the culture the energy a lot of you know you had a lot of people kind of in the same boat so to speak and so we had a lot of fun together we had our softball leagues all those you know great times but at the same time it was you know a little bit generic in in a certain way people thought alike and so when i left and got into industry 
um, you know, you had a company that had all these different disciplines. And so we had operations people and we had sales people and we had finance people and we had software engineers and, you know, got to see this kind of diversity of mindsets. And it was really eye-opening for me to be a part of that and to think about, you know, how it affected my work every day and how I interacted with people a lot differently that really had different skills. You know, I had a certain set of skills that were pretty unique, probably in a small company, you know, but, but, there, but there weren't a whole lot of me, you know, in that small company. There was a lot of, a lot yeah, of Anderson, different... you go out for a beer after work and discuss credits and debits, right? We could make a lot of fun out of that, believe it or not. But, uh, uh, yeah, we tried to stay away from it as much as possible. <laughs> so after the software company, where'd you go? So, yeah, we, took, we uh, worked at the software company for five years, Campbell Software. We sold labor scheduling to uh, Starbucks, Walmart, or not Starbucks, uh, Walgreens, uh, PetSmart, The Gap. We had a bunch of you know kind of Fortune 500 retail clients and ended up selling the business to SAP. And, and then I joined YesMail, uh, which was an internet direct marketing business. Uh, some of the investors in Campbell Software went there, and this was in the, in the late 90s. So it was kind of this go-go.com time. We took that company public, uh, which was a, a whirlwind of a tour, a uh, really crazy time, and ended up selling the business uh, to CMGI a year later. And so then I, I ended up running, the, I ran the company after we sold it. I was CFO when I joined. Our CEO uh, ended up leaving after, after we sold it, went to, to join the private equity world, and they promoted me to run it uh, for several years. I ran it as CEO, and, and we ended up selling it again, and that's when I left and joined, um, actually joined a consulting business, ran the Chicago office for about three years, and um, and then subsequent to that, joined another company called G2 Switchworks. So I was the CFO and COO, where we were selling um, travel reservation systems, in, in essence acting as the intermediary between airlines and, and online and offline travel agencies. And sold that business after about five years to a bigger uh, intermediary, if you will, prior to Echo. So I had a lot of t- I was focused a lot on technology, you know, a lot of diversity. Really, it was typically technology and services. Um, a lot, in most cases, with outside investors um, that were looking to sell the business within three to five years. You know, they put money in and they wanted to get it back. So then you joined Echo. It was uh, 2008, pre-IPO, and we were uh, less than $100 million in transitioning from a founder-led startup to uh, what would hopefully become a multi-billion dollar publicly traded transportation company. And that was the vision. Uh, but, but tell me a little bit about that transition when you joined. Yeah, I mean, I actually, actually joined in April 2008, and, um, and it was, uh, I think we were coming off that uh, $200 million a year, $100 million, I think we went 202 to 260. I can't remember if it was 100 to 202. Maybe it was 100 to 202 and then 260 when we went public. And uh, like you said, it was very, very entrepreneurial. Um, the uh, you know we were just kind of coming out with the first generation of optimizer if you remember that you know way back then and hiring salespeople and 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 really uh, growing an LTL brokerage business now we didn't coin ourselves LTL brokerage but that's eighty percent of what we did um, and it was uh, you know it was a very exciting time it was uh, we 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 uh, you know when I was hired it was the idea we were going to go public pretty quickly and I'm sure you remember that well and, and it was a uh, pretty crazy time. We had a very aggressive business plan, which required acquisitions, hiring, you know, investment in the, in the core capabilities and the core skill, uh, technologies of the business. And it was quite chaotic and we were preparing to go public. 
And we actually filed to go public about a month or two after I joined the company and, and uh, started working with investment bankers and uh, the idea we were going to go public. And then, and then September 2008, uh, the economy just collapsed. And, and our lead underwriter was a company called Lehman, which is no longer around. And, and uh, Lehman went bankrupt, which was outrageous at the time. Nobody had seen anything like that. So Those were crazy days. Were, I remember Morgan Stanley and Credit Suisse. I mean – they were fearful of their own existence. Yeah, I mean, it was the the, the housing, you know, the, the housing market had collapsed, and all these secure, securities that were underlying, you know, the housing markets. If you guys remember the, the movie The Big Short, they'll tell you what it's all. I was all, just thinking of that. You know what it was all about back then, but it was it was. We lived lot, through the Big Short. We lived and through went the Big public. Short and went. Somehow we went public, but it, it was it was interesting. Obviously, we you know our founders were still pretty engaged in the business. They were very aggressive guys. Uh, pushing us forward, so to speak, and um, but then anyway, Lehman Lehman went belly up, and we the market collapsed, and and, and our growth rate slowed because of that, and you know we pulled our IPO, and um, and it was good that we did, you know, because uh, it would have been a very difficult time. So very crazy, um, but uh, interesting a lot enough. About six to nine months later. We kind of regrouped and started all over again, and then we did end up going public in uh, September of 2009. Yeah, I remember that road show. That was a grind. I think what was it, 12 days? Yeah, it was 12 days. And I, and, and you know, one of my favorite stories from the road show. I've told this to people, uh, a couple of people at the time, and Doug will get a kick out of this one. But uh, so we we're on the road show, and you know, you're the CFO, and 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 you go public in September, and and one of the one of the key things. Um, that, that you got to do is you got to make your numbers, you know, so that's Q3 and you got to make your numbers because you're going to go public and raise capital. And then a month later, you're going to report. So the investment bankers are all over you to, uh, to make sure you're going to make your numbers and you're giving them periodic updates and forecasts. And, uh, and, and things were tight, you know, so we were kind of, I was a little worried about it. We we're going to make the numbers. And I remember I was at home one weekend and, uh, and, uh, and I was worried about the numbers, and so uh, Eric Lefkowski, one of our founders and board member at the time, you know, called me up at home, or we had a phone call, and uh, and he was he was uh, he was he was kind of uh, in a forceful kind of way, telling me, "Hey, Dave, don't don't worry about the numbers. You just take two days off. You're back on the road on on Monday, you know, and and, and keep selling this deal." And uh, my daughter heard the phone conversation. She was probably ten or eleven at the time, maybe twelve. <laughs> And she goes, Daddy, you've got such a great boss. He just wants you to take a vacation while you're, on, while you're at home on the weekend. <laughs> yeah, if she only knew. Yeah, get a kick out of that. Well, so we completed the road show. We, we got public. Uh, we had a little party in Manhattan in front of the uh, uh, Times Square. And yeah. then we had to come back and go to work. And... Uh, Shortly after that time, I think that we recognized we really needed to become a good truckload broker. You know, in that moment in time, I think we were a pretty good LTL broker. We had a, a managed transportation business, but we struggled with truckload, really didn't do intermodal, and um, we, we set out to build truckload. So, so talk a little bit about those early days, because... We set out to build a truckload brokerage, but we really didn't know what we were doing. And we, we had, you know, various people along the way that tried to help us get there. And, and really, I think eventually it was you that kind of figured out what I would call the echo flavor of truckload. Well, so, so you know, um, one of the things that made Echo, I think, so successful is we had a lot of diverse talent in those early years. 
And to some extent, there weren't as many people that came from the freight industry, you know, and our head of sales, VIP, and Razi, all those guys had different kinds of business experiences. And, and um, you know, they had a, 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 you know, great attitude of just, you know, growing and taking on uh, all the challenges that were ahead of us. And it was interesting. In the early days when we started to move over to truckload, um, you know, we kind of expected our truckload business to operate and perform just like our LTL business did. And so we set those standards early on that that's how it needed to perform. Otherwise, we weren't going to invest in it. And so I think we had a lot of false starts because in the early days, we didn't, we didn't quite recognize that the business model of truckload was quite different than the business model for LTL. And so, as you mentioned, we went through a couple of years really of kind of false starts, if you will, you know, where we didn't really have the business model defined. We weren't sure how to de- deliver the kind of service our customers required. And uh, what we, you know, we, we ended up uh, in 2000 and I can't remember the exact year, tw- 2011 or 12, you know, we, um, we'd made a couple acquisitions and we had some of the early guys that had a lot of experience, guys like Joe Larson, who runs our Scottsdale office and Jay Gustafson, you know, who'd been here and had left to go to open mile for a key position and Evan Schumacher had come back. And so we started to you know, get a lot of truckload DNA in the business. And, you know, what we in essence did is we ended up um, you know, really investing in our carrier sales organization and setting the standards for what it needed to do to perform. And, and, uh, and we, we, we remained committed to that. And we built, I think, a very strong and, you know, solid carrier sales organization that was able to provide the service to our sales organization that our sales organization needed. Our sales organization at the time had a lot of LTL experience. And they just, you know, kind of were used to selling a carrier, you know, and so Echo needed to be a carrier they could depend on. And the carrier sales organization was, in fact, that carrier, obviously aggregating capacity with thousands and thousands of truckload companies. But our sales organization needed this high level of service because we didn't have a tremendous amount. We had some, but not a tremendous amount of tr- real truckload brokers in our sales organization. And, and I think that, um, you know, we got behind that, that rally, so to speak. We built some technology that helped us execute. We you know, in hindsight, we recognize, you know, obviously we'll get into the command situation, but at the time, the technology tools that we built helped us to operate, you know, that truckload capability with, I think, a lot of, lot of, uh, a lot of uh, success. You know, when we grew a $500 million truckload business um, out of nowhere in about three years. And, um, you know, we were, we were real proud of what we'd built. And, and I think that, you know, we were well on our way to to having a great reputation in the marketplace as a multimodal broker. So that's a great transition, I think, to talk about the command acquisition. And, you know, command has different DNA than Echo. Um, They were really designed from the ground floor to be a truckload broker, you know, really kind of in the spirit of of American backhaulers, which Paul Loeb had built before command. Um, How do you view you know, kind of the legacy echo truckload business in combination with the command business because they they do the same thing, but they do it differently. They have different technology. And, you know, one of the challenges of an integration is is to bring that together. You know, you can't do it all at once. You know, there's a day that you have to flip the switch, but your work isn't done. And, you know, we're going through that right now. Uh, trying to get it to to the stage that we wanted to be at, but just talk for a minute about you know how you contrast the the echo truckload and the command truckload 
And what's your vision for bringing it together even closer and tighter in the future? So, um, you know, one of the things that when we were building Echo's truckload business, we we believed in the backhaulers model. You know, we believe, you know, we had a carrier sales organization and it was called a carrier sales organization for a reason. They were selling capacity to carriers and we intended it to operate, you know, like, um, like the backhaulers model, like the command model, like the coyote model. In reality, it didn't quite operate that way because we didn't have the technology and we also didn't have the sales brokerage kind of capabilities on the other side to manage it. So what was interesting is it operated a little more like a procurement organization or like a truckload carrier. So, you know, the, you know when, it, when a load needed to be covered, it was thrown over the wall and our carrier sales organization got it covered, period, end of story. And so it operated a little differently. And one of the things that we had always desired, and we had spent a lot of iterations with the technology team trying to figure out how to design a system that would enable our business to operate more like a backhaulers. And the reality was we couldn't deliver that system. We couldn't get it designed and delivered, you know, in the time frames that we wanted. And um, when, we, um, when, we, when we acquired Command, one of the things that we realized when we got a really up close and kind of personal look at, at all the technology and the clutch capabilities is that was the system we were trying to design all along. And it was right there. Now, so, you know, we made the decision that we were, it was an easy decision for us, that that was the, that that was the system we wanted to utilize. And that was the transition into really um, doing the, the one thing we could never effectively do, which is collect capacity from carriers and utilize that capacity to, to drive our truckload business forward. Again, it was more about we were selling loads to carriers. We weren't collecting capacity and matching loads. We didn't have really any good matching capability. And so, you know, phase one of command integration is really a change in the business model. And it's a tough change in a lot of ways because, you know, um, the subtleties of, you know, brokering freight, reading the internal market, using your internal systems to match freight versus the approach of selling to an external market to try to get market share and then doing whatever it takes to make sure that freight moves. There's, there's, you know, 80 to 90 percent of what we would do between Echo, Legacy, and Command is the same. And even when we look at our big accounts, our margins are very much the same, even though we think there's this big philosophical difference in terms of whether we're willing to take low-margin freight or high-margin freight or contract freight. The reality is it's very similar, but the, but the subtleties of the business model have shifted. We are collecting capacity from carriers. We are asking our sales channels to spend more time. If, if they take freight that's tough to move, they're going to have to spend a little more time moving that freight. And that's part of the uh, change management that's happening. And I think that when we put you know, one and one together and expected the answer to be three, because of the synergies, what we realized is when we put one and one together, the answer happened to be one and a half to one and three quarters. In other words, we lost a step because that business model change affected everybody. You know, it affected command employees in a certain way, more to do with system familiarity, accounting, changes in process, back office processes, uh, some technology stuff. And then on the echo side, that change in the business model has been a, a, a significant change. And so But in connection with that change in the business model, 
there were a lot of things that we didn't have in place, like all the relationships with the command carrier people, all the rules and protocols as to how to use the system with maximum efficiency. You know, some some of the technical glitches that made it a little tougher to do the learn-ins, some of the challenges to just train, you know, 1,500 people on a new system in 60 days when, you know, we all know that a new employee, it might take them nine months to get up to speed with the intricacies and the operation of, of our systems. They're not, you know, it's not quite the iPhone today. So, um, so you know, we're going through that. I think we're, I think we're over the hump in a lot of ways, um, but there's still pieces of that that the company's kind of coming together and bring, we're bringing it together. And you know, part of what we need to do, in my mind, is we have to believe in the business model. We have to, we have to, we have to believe in it, embrace it, learn it, and then the idea being that on the sales side, knowing the market, knowing the internal market will, in fact, make our salespeople more successful. That'll make them, you know, give them the tools to add more value to customers, to make better freight decisions, to basically be able to move, you know, less freight, if you will, and make more money because you know the capacity that we have at hand and how to make that internal market work. And so I think that we're getting to that phase right now where we've got to really um, – start to drive those synergies forward, embrace the changes that have occurred. You know, in the meantime, we're fixing the glitches. We're working through the, the kinks, if you will, um, and plow forward with, you know, the business model that we have at hand. Do you see any reason that we can't be competitive with anybody as a truckload broker? No, I don't. I don't think there's any reason we can't be competitive. I think that, um, you know, we've got a billion dollars of freight. Um, you know, everybody knows that just because you say you, you, you're competitive with everybody doesn't mean you're competitive on every load. You know, there's a time that there's a drop trailer or an asset or a broker that has some capacity that you don't have, you know, in a position that you don't have it. And so sometimes, you, you know, one of, the, one of the challenges is, you, on the one hand, we can compete with, any, with anybody, anywhere, anytime, but not every time, not in every place. And that's part of the learning cycle that, ha- that continues to evolve and has to happen. It's probably true for any asset-based carrier. It's probably even true for C.H. Robinson. You know, even though they're four times as big as the next biggest player, there's still going to be times when they may not have the right capacity in place. And so that's part of reading the internal market. And, um, you know, the, the, our, as our systems improve and our people, you know, uh, come up to speed with that capability, you know, we'll get better and better over time. Now, with all this attention that we've put on truckload, especially with the command acquisition and integration, you know, I've heard comments before like, you know, have we lost interest in LTL? So I know the answer to that question, by the way, but uh, I'd like for you just to opine on some of the other modes that we offer and uh, how you think about those, uh, how we can build upon them, uh, how they fit with the truckload offering, and uh, how we should think about going to market as a, as a transportation company. So, you know, uh, obviously when we, you know, we've always positioned ourselves as kind of a, a multimodal domestic, you know, business. And, and, and our competition is trying to do the same. So we like that positioning and we think that's I the right. I think they stole the term from they us. Probably, <laughs> they probably did. And so it's the right positioning, I think. And I think that, you know, and I'll start with, you know, some of these different modes. So on the LTL side, um, number one, it, it's, it's, uh, it's obviously a critical mode for Echo and a very, very important part of our business. It's one of the most profitable things that we do. And there's a lot of nuances on the LTL side. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we've always known and, and it continues to be true is that from a brokerage standpoint, you know, our LTL 
uh, offering is best you know, fit for small to mid-sized companies. And so we continue to see a tremendous amount of opportunity uh, going after those small to mid-sized companies. And we're trying to invest by driving, you know, having a better product for online capabilities to serve those small to mid-sized companies. You know, over time, those companies are going to want to become more and more self-serve. Today, 35% of our business with those companies is done on EchoTrack, and it's done online. So having a strong online component to augment this LTL strategy is very important. But when serving those companies, you know, obviously when we're really, really small and we have a tremendous amount of business that comes from companies with less than a million dollars in revenue, you know, so those companies don't have a lot of truckload. They probably don't have any. Um, and so in those cases, it's really an LTL-centric approach. Now, as we continue to move up market, we find a lot of opportunities in what I call this kind of small to mid market size, which might be, you know, a company that's, you know, a million in revenue to, to 100 million. Now, the reality is when I get up to 25, 30, 50 million in, in revenue, uh, the LTL product in a lot of cases becomes a managed transportation offering. And that's why we try to cross train our employees about the managed transportation offering because as you continue to go up market with LTL, the solution becomes an oftentimes more of a managed transportation solution. So those companies then, we, you know, it's a different process to getting your foot in the door and to locking those businesses up. But there's a lot of multimodal opportunities there. And so as we continue to progress as a business, you know, we got to, you know, f- further refine the way we segment the market and the way we direct people for a couple of different reasons. Number one, it takes different skills to sell to these small and mid-sized companies. It's interesting when you asked me about my career at Arthur Anderson, when I started – I picked what was called the enterprise group, which was the small company business. And the reason I wanted to serve those small companies is I could deal with the top. You know, I, was, I, I felt like early in my career I could be more consultative and help them manage their business more successfully. So there were different skills necessary to serve a small to mid-sized company that might be true to serve a very large company. You know, if I go into Quaker – you know, I'm dealing with a, a different level of sophistication. I'm, different, I'm, I'm definitely dealing with somebody who's running a truckload routing guide process and an annual bid process and, and has a high degree of sophistication and isn't really interested in my LTL capabilities. So as we continue to mature and we've got, you know, we've got to continue to think about how we bring people into the business and how we get them focused on the right customer set and then provide career opportunities to move around, you know, as they see fit. And as their successes kind of lead them, you know, one of the things that, that, that we've always seen is that, you know, salespeople have success as they kind of work their own supply chains. You know, we used to talk about it, you know, eight years ago, I remember when we were on the road show and it's still true today is that, you know, when a salesperson has success with a, with a customer, you know, they start to work that supply chain and they start to learn that industry and they, you know, they tend to stay probably in companies of similar sizes uh, but not always true, you know, not always true. So we've got a very flexible system today that allows salespeople to kind of navigate that maze, find their own way. Uh, but, you know, one of the things we continue to focus on is how do we focus people to drive success earlier in their career, make sure they're not wandering around too, you know, too free, you know, give them more direction so that they can have more success and have more skills to, to, to serve, you know, that specific customer set. You know, we bought a couple intermodal companies, um, along the way. And the reason we did that is we've thought that as we served our truckload clients, that as capacity tightened, that the intermodal offering would be a nice adjunct. And we saw that, you know, with driver shortage and a lot of things going on in the truckload segment, 
that having intermodal capabilities would be a nice uh, uh, complement to our truckload business. It wasn't our core strategy. We weren't trying to buy assets and equipment, but we wanted to have a strong you know, intermodal business. And the, the reality is over the last couple of years, because the market's been pretty loose, it's been tough to invest in that. But we're starting to see, we, we believe the market could tighten again. I think you know, what's interesting about that is that it's really tough to sell intermodal if you don't know intermodal. And it's tough to operate intermodal. And so you know, we've got to continue to work on you know, both making it easier so salespeople can understand the process and improving the visibility of transactions that are in, in progress so that we can deliver good service and we can inform our customer what's going on and we can educate them. Um, and, and then better pricing tools so that guys can access that, that uh, capability that we have. And how about our partial business? So our partial business has been one of the real, you know, differentiators. And, um, you know, we started by, uh, by building a specialized team to help, you know, people move what, you know, is known as obviously volume shipments and things that are a little bigger than, than should operate on an LTL tariff. And, you know, today we've, we've, uh, we've got a dedicated partial team that does, you know, a tremendous amount of both sourcing and operations work for our client sales team. And they really do a great job of serving that niche market that, you know, works both with small companies and large companies. So it's kind of an interesting fit because it really span, you know, covers the spectrum of what we do. You know, it's a good example of being multimodal and that, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's continued, you know, you, you asked about the importance of these modes as we, as we've gone through the integration, our truckload business has slowed down a little bit, you know, and you can understand why, but our partial business has continued to grow. Our LTL business has continued to grow. Our managed transportation business has continued to grow. You know, so those are very important complements to our overall business strategy is that, hey, while we've got our heads down and we're trying to do all the work to fix our truckload business and make it operate as smooth and effective as possible, we've still got all these other parts of our business that are operating very well. And we've got to continue to focus on those and understand the importance of those. Great. Um, what do you think that Echo does well and what do you think that Echo could do better? So I think that, you know, what, what Echo does very well and has done well, you know, is, is, is kind of a, a, as a company, we have an attitude and the attitude is let's grow and we can take on the big boys and we can do anything and we're going to be successful no matter what. And so I think that we've got that in our DNA and our people have that and uh, it's, it's served us very, very well. We, we've won business where we probably had no business winning it, you know, in the first place. And we've done a lot of things and, and we've been aggressive in the marketplace and I think that we're in a very, very competitive – what's fun about the market we're in is it's so big. There's a tremendous amount of opportunity. But it's a very, very competitive marketplace. So if, you're not, if, you're not, if you don't have the attitude to compete every day, you're going to get beat. And we have that attitude. And that's a lot of, that's, I think that's what we do well. It's, uh, it's what's got us to this point. And it's what command has done well too. So, you know, it's been a, a great integration from that perspective. You know, that gets us in trouble sometimes. We take on too much. We spread ourselves too thin. We take on custom deals. It stresses our technology. So I think that what we've got to do better is we've got to simplify what we're doing. We've got to streamline what we're doing. Um, we've got to focus on what matters most, you know, instead of what, you know, everything matters. And so as we've become more diverse with different people that have different backgrounds, serving different kind of clients and different market segments, et cetera, you know, we have a tendency to overcomplicate things. And so I think that, you know, one of the big focuses for us as we both technologically and process wise, you know, is to simplify what we do. And remember, we're in a simple business, you know, we're moving freight. 
And we can tend to kind of overthink how complicated that needs to be. We need to move freight. We need to service customers. We need to let them know when something's going wrong. We need to get out in front of it. We need to find them good values because there's a lot of competition out there and it's very price sensitive. So Dave, what do you think the opportunity is with our managed transportation offering? And um, where does it fit in the marketplace? Who should we be selling it to? Who at Echo should be selling it? And and how do we get the most out of that service? So first off, it's... uh, you know, it's one of the foundations of what Echo was built on. It's the first thing that we did at Echo was was sold managed transportation to a company called Archway, which has been a client for 10 years now and is one of our largest clients. And we've gone through two or three CEOs and uh, and two two private equity changes. So, um, you know, kudos to our team that that works in the managed train. They work, we, you know, they bust their butts for their customers. You know, and I think it's a super important part of what we do. You know, today our business. And when I started, our managed trans business was 60% of our revenue, I think. Today, it's, it's 25 or less. But it's very, very important because shippers are all trying to automate how they procure freight. And so, you know, it's very rare that we run into a shipper these days, certainly of size, that isn't doing something to automate how they procure freight. And so we want to be that something. And that puts us in the driver's seat. And so it's a critical component of our business. And I think when we... Think about the markets that we're very successful in. You know, there's probably um, you could slice it up two or three different ways, but there's there's two dimensions to the service. You know, the first service is is it a self service or is it a managed service? You know, some companies want to buy some technology, install it in their location, or run it on the cloud. And they don't need any help; they just need software. That's not what Echo does. And so what Echo does is provides a managed service. So that is, hey, not only do we need software and efficiency, we need knowledge and know-how and manpower to run this for us. And that's what Echo does very well. And so part of what we focus on today is a managed service kind of offering. We're looking for companies that are open to the idea of hiring us because we know how to manage transportation better than they do. And they can free up their resources to focus on their core business. The second piece of the puzzle is what size companies does that work for? What kind of companies does that work for? You know, and, and, and I would say today there's two primary segments for Echo. The first segment is small companies. You know, I talked about that earlier. How do I sell LTL to that $100 million company when they're really not interested in brokering it every day? We've got a managed transportation offering that works great for those small to mid-sized companies. And we have sales reps all across the business talking to those companies all the time. And so we've got to continue to educate those sales reps how to, how to see those opportunities and how to bring in the experts to help them close those opportunities and sell those things. The second piece of the puzzle is as companies get bigger, they want uh, the, 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 the sell becomes a little different. It becomes more multimodal or more truckload-centric. And we've got some very large truckload-centric shippers that are moving you know, $20, $30, $40 million of freight under management. So those are billion-dollar type companies. That's the second piece of the market segment that we fit very, very well in today. And we've got great examples of our success of going up market. We've got a few things on the technology roadmap that will help us do that. And that's going to be a core focus of ours over the next few years. Then the third part of this market segment are these giant companies, the Quakers of the world, the 3Ms of the world, the Nikes of the world. On the one sense, those are not the best targets for Echo because those require a lot of self-service capabilities that we're not building. But sometimes there's niches in those kind of big business. Nike's a managed trans customer, but we don't do everything for Nike. We've picked a 
a piece of that business that we were able to penetrate. So those are a little more opportunistic in nature uh, than, than the other two market segments. But I think that in terms of our overall um, commitment to managed trans, I think it's a very, very important part of our business. Customers are, in fact, embracing the idea of outsourcing transportation more and more. We want to be, we want to seat at the table. And we know that when we own those client relationships, they're sticky. I mean, many of these client relationships have been around for as long as Echo has been. We've had over 90% renewal rates, you know, for many, many years running. So these are great relationships for us, and uh, we've got to adapt and grow and serve a bigger set segment of the market as we, as we move forward. Great. So for our listeners that don't know, each year the executive team comes together for several days, and actually it spreads out over probably a month of time. And we put together what we call the Echo Playbook. And the playbook is really it's analogous to a sports team going into a season. It's the plays we want to run for that season to be successful and win the championship. So um, we've got a playbook for 2017, Dave. Maybe you could talk a little bit about some of the plays in that playbook. I think the first play is is uh, let's finish the job at hand on the command integration. And so we've done – you know, the technology work that got us operating on a common platform. And what we've got to do now is complete the job, both from a, a cultural perspective, uh, from, a, from an internal and external relationship perspective, from a process perspective, clean up, you know, and, and, and train in, you know, where necessary the new processes. And from a technology perspective, you know, where we've got, you know, we did a phase one integration. We always talked about phase two and phase three. You know, so we'll do some quick fixes, and then we'll enhance some of the core systems moving forward. So job one is to do that. Uh, what, what, that what that leads to is, is job two, which is let's capture the synergies and the idea of the command acquisition. When we, when we bought command, um, you know, we told the market that we would uh, deliver $200 million, two to $300 million of revenue synergies because of three primary factors. You know, the first being that we believed – that our managed transportation offering was an offering that the command sales force can utilize and take to market. And we've seen tremendous success with that. I think that we're over $50 million of business closed uh, by the command sales force on the managed transportation side and with a pretty healthy pipeline in tow as well. So that's going very, very well. The second piece of the puzzle was we believe there was a multimodal opportunity for the command sales organization. And that was because they had very little LTL or partial or intermodal business. And we've seen a little bit of uptake. We've done a nice job on the partial side. We've probably got about $10 million of revenue enhancement just by cross-selling partials. And we think there's another 20 to $50 million of opportunity ahead of us uh, by, by improving our ability to kind of sell a multimodal offering through that command sales organization. And then the third piece of the puzzle, which is the biggest piece of the puzzle, was the idea that our truckload brokerage business would be more powerful together than apart. And so... The first reason for that is a billion dollars of freight gives you much more network density and gives you a better ability to, uh, to move freight for more customers and more lanes, you know, every day at competitive prices. And we did an analysis and we knew that apart, our buying rates might have been 2 or 3% below the Transcore average, but when we put them together, we were 4 or 5% below the Transcore average. In other words, if we took the best of the best, we could buy better. And so that's what we've got to realize today. And so completing this integration gets us to the point where truly our buying power is mattering in the marketplace and we're able, our sales organization is able to go out and capture those synergies. So, you know, that's a big, you know, piece of the job. I think 
Um, you know, the third thing that, I don't know if I've got these in all order, so I'm shooting off the hip, but the third thing that is critical for us at Echo is that we continue to do the things necessary to make the new people entering our business as successful as possible. Uh, we hire over five to 600 people a year, and they enter our business, and sales attrition is one of the key factors that we want to continue to work on and continue to improve. So you know, everything that we do in terms of training new people, providing mentoring to new people, putting compensation plans, you know, utilizing, investing in Salesforce and data.com so that people can utilize our system to make better calls with, with, more, you know, with more new customers to really be successful in the marketplace on the, on the client side and obviously similar activities on the carrier side. So we know that if we can reduce the, uh, the turnover that we have in the business and provide, and that's not just for new people entering the business, that's also providing career opportunities and development opportunities for our existing workforce. You know, once someone's been here three to four to five years, they're very, you know, they're very well, they're very capable of being very, very successful. But it's a tough business and it's a grind. And some people love it and can grow and make a ton of money. But other people want to take on new challenges. So having management opportunities and opportunities to grow and do different things is another big piece of the puzzle. So there's a, you know, no matter what we do, the culture is going to be a number one focus for Echo. So when we think about our playbook and, you know, what I always think is for us to compete, our people have to be engaged and work hard because of the, the competitive nature of the industry. You know, so our playbook really centers around those things. I think the final piece of the puzzle on the playbook is being easy to do business with. And that is we've got to be a pleasure to do business with from the carrier perspective. And, you know, there's a lot of automation coming in our industry and carriers want to get paid quickly and they want to get paid. You know, they want no hassles. They want to get offered good freight. They want to be able to see the freight first. And we've got to be, you know, we've got to be the place to go and have the reputation with the carrier community. And then the shippers want consistent service and they want consistent prices and they want, uh, they, they want to utilize us for the capacity that they need and they want to be able to depend on us. So we've got to, you know, continue to focus on doing those things better than the competition and constantly improving because technology is creating new competitors every day and we've got to stay ahead of that curve uh, to be successful. We touched on it earlier and you mentioned it just now, but what advice do you have for um, really any employee at Echo who wants to move up, get ahead, manage their career, be successful. And uh, I would put that in the context of the echo culture. You know, what, what, what do you think they need to do? You know, I think the first thing is to, is to, is either, you know, you need, you need to develop a genuine interest and kind of caring about what you're doing every day. And I think if you can do that, if you can find a reason to, to, to get excited about what you're doing, then you can ask why a lot of times. Why do we do what we do? You know, why is this problem happening? You know, why is my customer need me to call them on a Saturday? You know, why do I need to find a carrier that's going to show up at 2 a.m. Sunday morning to pick up this freight? And, and, then, and then have that passion and energy to do that. When we talk to customers and they say, what is it that you love most about Echo? Typically, it's my sales rep or the person I'm dealing with. You know, so as much as we talk about how important technology is and um, all the things that we're trying to do to make people successful, when you talk to the customers, they're saying, yeah, but it's Joe Blow who I, who I care about. Yeah, the and relationships matter, don't they? The relationships matter. And so, you know, if you're one of those and, – and, and, you know, that, that relationship, it goes across the organization. It's not just – a sales rep. I mean, it can be an accounting person. It can be somebody dealing with a credit request. It can be somebody that's trying to figure out how to apply, you know, an unapplied payment. 
and the courtesy and the way that you deal with that customer and the, and, the, and recognizing that that touch point matters. So I think that, you know, to me, it's, um, it, it's, it's coming down to kind of getting that internal drive and passion for what we do, which creates the opportunity for you to take that extra step and to, you know, to, to live the echo values. I think those values that we have, you know, are the right values and you can, you know, everyone can make them their own in a certain way. Um, you know, because to me, the number one driver of success is attitude. You know, it's not smarts, it's yep. attitude. Yep. And, uh, but you, you know, attitude is, you know, and, and we recognize as a company that we got to create a culture that's conducive, you know, to helping people you know, get the right attitude and want to do what they do and, and, and believe in the mission of the business and, and, and feel good about it. But I also think that as an individual or a, a new person coming out of college, you know, and starting their career, some of that's on you, you know, and, and I would tell my kids the same thing. That's on you. you you've got to find a way to have that attitude. You've got to bring it every day. Someone else is going to. Um, you've got to get your priorities straight. Yeah, I would just add to that. Really, um, when I think about customers and why they do business with us or anybody for that matter, and I've always said this, at the end of the day, the price gets to be about the same. People do business with the people that they like. That's right. And why do they like them? Well, they like them, A, because they're personal, but B, because you care about my business. You take care of things. And maybe even you care about you as an individual. And, you know, I know when your birthday is or I know exactly. your pets or, you know, whatever it is. <laughs> you, know, you know, I know your favorite sports. And you see that, the kind of the, – the ability to combine, you know, the personal relationship and the business relationship together – create such a powerful combination yeah. to do that. You've got to, you got to give a shit. Yep. You have to care. And I also think the other, the other term you used was being easy to do business with. And I think that applies not only to, you know, salesperson and their client or a carrier salesperson and their carrier, but it, 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 it applies to every employee in the company with whomever you come into t- contact with, you know, if you're in accounts payable or accounts receivable or marketing, it doesn't really matter. You, you're dealing with people. That's what we do. Uh, we all need to be easy to do business with. Well, I think it's a great point because, you know, back to something you asked me earlier, one of the things that I recognized when I was at Arthur Anderson, we had offices all around the country. And one of the key attributes that made people successful was their ability to navigate and build internal relationships. There was all but always somebody that knew the answer to my client's problem you know, within our four walls or within our company. But I didn't know the answer every time. And so, um, and that same thing is true here today. And no matter what obstacle anybody is facing, you know, there's someone here who knows how to solve that problem. And if you can build those internal, and you got to give to get. I mean, you know, you, you can't just demand everybody serve you all the time. You know, so I think that the people that can really thrive and be the most successful um, are people that, you know, you got to fight for what you believe in for your customers, get it done for your customers, but you also have to respect and work with people internally and, and uh, make an effort to do those things. And I think that's a, that was an interesting lesson that I picked up probably early in my career, especially when you're at a bigger company. Yeah. It's different when you're at a really small company and everybody knows each other, but you got to work on it, I think, when you have 2,500 people. It's a great point. We all need to do a better job of that, and we can get a lot more done that way. Yeah, that's right. Well, Dave, I think that's about all the time we have. Uh, anything else on your mind that you'd like to cover or talk about? I don't know. Final thoughts is, you know, we got a great future ahead of us here at Echo. I, I really believe that. I think that 
Um, the market opportunity is still giant. You know, we, we've got, you know, I know that it, there's a feel that we're doing a lot of heavy lifting right now because we're going through a time where there is a lot of change and we have to understand, you know, that we're in that time. But you also have to kind of keep that outlook that is, hey, we've got so many things that we can build upon that others don't have. And so I think, uh, you know, this is a great business to be in. It's very exciting. It's going through a lot of change. And we've got a very strong position in that business. So we ought to be working really hard to protect and enhance that position every day. Great. My guest today has been Dave Menzel, President and Chief Operating Officer of Echo. Thanks for coming, Dave. Thanks, Doug.